Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Joanna and the Maestro. And Stevie, the great thing about this is, is that it's really the first time in our long life together that we've sat and talked and talked and talked about music. And it's just been fantastic. Have you liked it? <laughs> I'd love it, but I'm probably a, a bit of a machine that you put a coin in and, a, and away I go. No, that's not how it no, is. No, but this is a privilege for me to talk about the, the biggest thing in my life and yeah. what I do and think about every day. And today I want us to talk about English music. I'd say British because some of them British. are... Of yes, course. I, there's so much debate and difficulty about saying Great Britain, Great Britain and Northern Ireland and all these things have different things. So should we say British and that would include okay. composers from Ireland and Wales and Scotland? Yeah, I think I think British is good. Got to be so careful about these slightly controversial things. No, we're not going to get too excited. But I tell you what, when I very first met you and we talked a bit about music, because of course we would have done, you said that one of the first and most powerful influences on you was Talis. And you began to talk to me about early British music. Did I? The yeah. first time we met? Literally Gosh, that's the first a bit, time. That's a bit it, was, it, it was because the car had run out of petrol, which you were driving me in. And so we had a moment waiting, I think, for petrol. And, and anyway, we, we somehow got onto Talis. And, and I, funnily enough, never really thought about English or British music in those days being as influential as it was. Was Talis huge? Well, yes, absolutely. The 16th century and into the early years of the 1600s was an incredibly fertile time. There are a handful of composers, Thomas Tallis, Orlando Gibbons, William Byrd, Morley, Wilkes, Wilby. And the thing about all that is that they were all being influenced by the, the growth of music in Italy. Um, and... It is an interesting thing about these British Isles and the, the production of musicians. We really are well-versed in every other style, European style. I can't really say that Italians really are much interested in British music. Would they have heard of Talis and Bird? And I don't think so. But the European influence was certainly taken in by by our composers, who excelled, frankly. And it's often called the golden age of uh, British music. There were so many composers, and they were, all, they were all pretty well known. They held positions as organists of uh, cathedrals and churches. And they also wrote keyboard music, choral music, religious music. Was it mostly religious music they wrote? Well, that was where most demand existed. 
So keyboard music was for people who had an instrument who would want to play. But I was first introduced to all those composers when I was a chorister at Canterbury. Our four houses at, at, at school were um, Tallis, Wilkes, Gibbons and Bird. And I was in the Tallis house. Um, his music is quite extraordinary. He, he wrote a, a really an unbelievably complicated and wonderful piece for 40 different parts, Spermenalium, 40 separate parts. And it's magic to hear that, the textures he gets and all, all that sort of thing. And what was Orlando Gibbons' music like? Oh, y y lyrical. More lyrical than Talis, perhaps. Slightly more melodic in a sense that we would recognise. Clap your hands. This is such a good example of Orlando Gibbons, such life about it, but also such charm in the in the vocal lines, the melody. And of course, it's a very positive way of looking at one syllable to one note. What other instruments were they using apart from keyboard, which would have been what? A harpsichord or a viols. Organ? Viols, the early the early string family. Yeah. The, the viols, which became violins and violas and cellos. The important thing, I think, is that is that they were under pressure as well, you, because the Talis, of course, grew up where all religion was in Latin, all religious service was in Latin. But then Henry VIII, of course, insisted that everything had to be in English. The Church of England was born... And Bird was a devout Catholic all his life, but they had to go with the flow. So at one point, they, they were instructed that there should be no long phrases with one syllable on a lot of notes, you know, which we call a melisma. So one vowel, you know, ah, and the, the rule was that you could only have one note per syllable. Why? Because they wanted to go back to... Plain, well, no, because plain song no, went over. No, a, a much more um, restricted kind of, i.e. no frills, no decoration, no ornamentation, which was associated with the glories of the Catholic Church. So it became very straightened, very restricted. Um, but all of these, all of these composers continued to write madrigals. Some of them are very raunchy. It would perhaps not be so much of a surprise that um, Thomas Wilkes's scores have <clears throat> the stains of wine glasses on them. And you know, the, the, these were men of the world. Bird was a very serious man, and Tallis was really the master of them all. I think in that he, he, perhaps he's more Beethoven to Gibbons' Mozart, 
Do you see what I'm, yes. I'm, I'm saying? He, Talis really worked incredibly hard at breaking boundaries, whereas Gibbons wrote much more within the parameters of the time. What is that one Talis thing you said you'd like played at your funeral? Which I shall play at your funeral if I'm still alive and I should be blubbing through it. Or, oh, saying, well, or standing no, no, up in front no, and here's saying... A, here's a is, problem. What is it called? Well, well there, there is the most divine English anthem, If Ye Love Me, which is one note per syllable, which I've heard fully professional choirs sing and amateur choirs sing. It's one of those pieces that amateurs and professionals really don't have much over each other. It's so simple in delivery. And if you do it with too much intensity or, or too much professionalism, it doesn't have the same impact because that chips away at the simplicity of it. As the years progressed and kind of European music gained the preeminence and therefore it became, you know, Bach and then Handel and Mozart and Beethoven and so on. What was happening in, in British music at that time? Well, you, the one of our greatest ever composers was a man called Henry Purcell. Hmm. Purcell had a much more dramatic sense about what music could do. So if you think of Dido and Aeneas and the final scene, When I Am Laid... In Earth. In Earth... harmonies really hurt you. Mm. He, he had a way of creating dissonances. So that, that's notes that are out of the normal harmonic understanding. And dissonance is what creates tension. Dissonance against consonance. So if you just play um, chords of C major... Can you show me a dissonance and a consonance? <laughs> it doesn't um it's stepping outside what is naturally consonant and by that i mean stepping outside what is in the normal harmonic sequence that all sound is made from and do you think that the human body as it were accepts consonants more readily we look forward to you know a broken chord sounding charming or you know is it is it easier for us to to hear and expect things in a major key with a kind of happy sound? Because I've noticed that a lot of people who compose prefer to compose in a minor key. I've, I think it sounds. I think it's easier to compose in a minor key. You've always said it's very hard to write happy songs. Ah, what I would say is that every sound you make 
has certain harmonics in the sequence. It's rather like light, which is in waves, and everybody's voice is created from a different arrangement of those harmonics. So some harmonics are stronger than others. Shall I just yes. play Can the, just the basic scientifically? I, I think it was Pythagoras who first came. Uh, found. The maestro walks to the piano. So the fundamental, if you take the fundamental to be. Then the harmonic sequence is made up of these noises. Why don't you? I like it demonstrating. No, no, no. Because we're talking about British music here. He's storing something <laughs> up for the future. Yes, okay. But your question was: um, Do human beings are they more comfortable with consonants? The answer is yes. So consonants we fundamentally accept as good. It makes us feel good. The maestro has moved over to the piano where he's going to show us, first of all, consonants and then dissonance. Yeah. This is a chord that will make you feel good. It's full of, it's full of comfort because all its frequencies are chiming with each other. Then if you branch out a little further with a couple of dissonances, but not too many. Still quite nice, but a little bit... That's a dissonance. And a jazz musician might use that chord, so... But then if you go even further with more dissonances, and you would have... Ooh. And that is uncomfortable because it's got... Those are all working against each other. And that's dissonance. Now, the whole point about the journey of music is that if you go from comfort to dissonance and then back to comfort, you've created a journey from comfort to dissonance to comfort. So you've gone somewhere and come back. It's really that simple. All musicians are fascinated in how human beings react to music per se. And we know that music is a powerful influence in helping people with dementia, with depression. And it's clear to everybody that they talk about things as, oh, that's my happy place. When they, um, they know what to listen to if they want to listen to music that makes them feel good. And I was tempted when I was having a supper one night up at Trinity, Cambridge, which is a very scientific college and Nobel Prizes galore and I was sitting between two very very eminent dons and I said to the gentleman on my left why is it that a human being describes some sounds as good and some sounds as bad and he said every scientist has thought about something along these lines to do with all sorts of things. Why does a particular architecture please us and why does certain architecture not please us? Nothing to do with function, to do with pleasure. And he said, but this really is a matter for the brain chemists because it's, it's clearly a facility that human beings have. It's also the way that we interpret the world. 
One's always heard of people being tortured around the world with the use of sound. So if you create sound like white sound with, with bangs that have no rhythm to them, for example, that will upset you a great deal. And if you're subjected to it for too long, it will really disturb you. It breaks you down. So we know that there is that there are sounds that please us and there are sounds that don't please us as much. Well, going back to what you've mentioned before, which is the Purcell. mother... Oh, no, the mother and a lullaby. Just gentle, soft sounds yep. which comfort a little small person going to sleep. And I found that if you hum, it sounds a bit grotesque, if you hum at animals, <laughs> if you go very close to an animal's head and get your head close to it and hum, and of course humming goes through your, vibrating through your head, they pay a great deal of attention. Yes, and that's absolutely right. And I'm sure that animals respond to sound in exactly the same way as we do. Something that really interests me too is the way that we identify all sorts of things by the sound they make. Now, that sounds very simple. You say, well, that's the sound of a car, or that's, the, that's this and that's that. But animals whose hearing is much more acute than ours, some absolutely unbelievably acutely sensitive to sound, they define quite a lot of their world by what they hear. And we tend not to do this so much as humans. But it is what primarily affects our interest in music. Because the, the object of music really is to please the ear. Do you remember that scene in the Shawshank Redemption? Yes. When Tim, Tim Robbins' character gets into the, you know, into the main man's office and sort of locks the door and puts on a gramophone record and puts the loudspeaker to it and plays the music. What was it? Soiree Fantula or something? No, no, what it's the it? letter duet from The Marriage of Figaro. From Figaro, so Mozart. Yeah. And he plays it out over the great parade ground. And all those, I know it's a film, but those hardened criminals all stop and turn their faces like sunflowers to the sun just to hear this utter beauty which they've been stripped of. So their punishment is having nothing nice in their lives. Let me just play you the opening of that if I can remember it. That's a demonstration of the simplest possible journey. It's all consonant. So it's only two chords. It's so lovely and it's so simple and it's so unbelievably That's powerful. why I think it worked so well in the film. And I know you say it's a film, but weren't you fascinated a few years ago when they started playing classical music at Stockwell Tube Station. Yes. No, it was at the Oval, actually. And, and at Stockwell, Stockwell. No, that's true. And because these Stockwell. were troubled um, well, it, it, tube stations. It, 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 brawls and fights and scruffs and things like that. And when they played the classical music, people couldn't be bad. That was odd, wasn't it? it they I, had to go away and be bad somewhere else. You see, classical music basically picks out the fundamentals of sound. I mean, your voice is different from mine. I recognise yours, and I recognise the voices of everybody in this room. Um, I, I, I can recognise people's voices on the telephone. Um, and you, a musician's hearing and analysis of what he's hearing or she is hearing um, it becomes more and more acute the, the, the more you're doing it. And so what music does is extract the fundamentals and 
clean away all the extra sound. And from that simple emotional experience of comfort and consonance, music then developed into forms that intellectually you can enjoy and into, into narrative forms. I loved, so talking about enjoying a narrative form, I loved, as a child, learning all the British folk songs. Mm. I loved the stories they told. They were usually in tunes that were quite easy for young people, or indeed anybody who's not necessarily terrifically musical, to pick up and to to recognise, you know, whether it's the Foggy Foggy Dew or... Can you as, think of one of those tunes? Give um, us an example. Early one morning, just as the sun was rising. And the tune, please? Uh, no, you can't. Stevie, you're mad. Can't you recognise that? You're going to make me sing it. Early, early one, one morning, morning just as the sun was rising, I heard a maiden sing in the valley below. And that's lovely and easy. And I remember hearing that when I was only six or seven and I didn't know of these valleys and things like that and became obsessed, as I have remained the rest of my life, with the very words valley and below and heights and mountains and hills. The very words spell out a kind of strange place because at that time I was in flat old Malaya with jungles and although we had heights, it was different. I've gone down a strange alley here, but what I'm saying is that all those songs, dashing away with the smoothing iron and down by the Sally Gardens, it doesn't matter, whatever they were, they had usually pastoral themes. Down by the sunny gardens, my love and I did meet. She passed the sunny gardens with little snow-white feet. Down by the Sally Gardens was actually a poem written by Yeats who said it was an attempt to reconstruct an old song from three lines which he'd imperfectly remembered. He'd heard an old peasant woman in a village in Sligo who used to sing songs to herself, and he heard this and thought, I can make something of this. So we have these beautifully romantic Irish songs, but then the other great trope is soldiers going off to war and women being treated badly. The one that springs to my mind is, Soldier, soldier, won't you marry me? It, look, that sounds quite cheery to the ear, but really, it's a story about a complete con man who manages to persuade a sweet young maiden to give him a mass of treasured clothes from her grandfather's chest. Oh, soldier, soldier, won't you marry me with your musket, fife and drum? Oh, no, sweet maid, I cannot marry thee, for I have no coat to put on. Then up she went to her grandfather's chest and got him a coat of the very, very best. She got him a coat of the very, very best and the soldier put it on. Oh, soldier. But so these are stories, some of them are warning stories, but they're usually set in a pastoral or a recognisable scene. They're not religious, but quite often a fair maiden is injured in some way. Yes, that... Uh, no, or there's song, a sadness and a death involved. Folk song is a... Is, I love it, them. Is, it is, is a gloriously fertile other dimension to the development of music, but the principles are the same. Every folk song that you can think of, mm. I'm pretty certain, that would, would be using those same values of uh, consonants. And the way that a phrase builds, the choice of the notes, the leaps that it makes, and all of those little details. But basically, it's following the same precepts. 
And some of them were sea shanties too, because of course, being an island race, a lot of our life was concerned with fishing or shipping or sailors, exploring the world and going away, getting caught in storms, being drowned, stories like Tom Bowling. This is a very British thing, actually. It, it the is. The sea shanty But is... you're not going to have a sea shanty in Switzerland because it's landlocked. And we were completely <laughs> surrounded. We've got great ports with people coming into Hull, to Liverpool, to Southampton, people being lost off the Cornish coast. So mm -hmm. all the dramas right up in Scotland, the wildness and the sense that the Armada sailed around Scotland, we're completely surrounded by water. Water. Mm -hmm. We forget this now because we can drive to the continent under the tunnel, or we can take aeroplanes to any part of the world without getting our feet wet. But in the old days, the sea was everything. And mm -hmm. fish came in, wheeled, what, the keel row, the keel row, the keel row, wheeled something, the keel row. And in Dublin's first city, when she was selling mm -hmm. her Molly Malone, she wheeled her wheelbarrow, swinging cockles and mussels, alive, alive, oh. When and what was that other lovely song? She's the Belle of Belfast City. Oh, yes. She is handsome, she is pretty, she is the belle of Belfast City. She is Gordon, one, two, three. Say, will you tell me who is she? I That's told my ma when I get home. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Did you love that? You introduced those, those Irish songs to me. I love I love them all. I love I love those that folky kind of feeling that everybody sang. They sang, okay, they sang in church at Harvest Festivals and every every Sunday, because most people used to go to church. They would sing hymns, but they were always singing. And they would sing Harvest home songs, they would sing spring songs, they would sing songs as they drove their cattle to market and had to, you know, look at, as I was going to Scarborough Fair, you know, those great sort of travelly songs. And then you get the songs like Carrick Fergus. I mean, all of them were to do with places and people traveling around these islands and going, the you know, the sky boat song, sail bonny boat, like a bird on the wing. Every country that has a strong folk song tradition, like Czechoslovakia, Bela Bartok, Kadai, in this country, Vaughan Williams and Edward Moran, Delius, they all paid homage to folk song. And Vaughan Williams, in fact, was instrumental in collecting more folk songs, more English folk songs than any other musician that this country has ever produced. So there's a great debt to be paid to the folk song tradition. There's something particular about it as well because these were never written down until Vaughan Williams and uh, those like him began to transcribe them, began to listen to people singing them and sat there with manuscript paper writing them down. There's that wonderful Rafe Vaughan Williams number called My Bonnie Boy, which is part of the English folk suite. Um, when would Vaughan Williams have been travelling around England transcribing these folk melodies? This was in the early years of the 20th century. And before then, people, if they knew songs, they, would, they heard them in a pub, they'd all gather around and Absolutely. sing them, you know, doing the Lambeth Walk. And Absolutely. Look, we've come to the end of our time, and it's entirely my fault because we haven't covered all the stuff I really wanted to cover. I, I digressed, Maestro, I'm so sorry. But um, it gives us a great chance of coming back to this subject of British music and composers in the next episode. But for this one, can we play out with something that you'd like to choose? What would you choose? Well, I'd choose one of Talis's Latin motets, which for me has all the simplicity 
but slightly more depth. And it's, it's a piece that I used to travel with when I went away for weeks and weeks and weeks, far away and abroad. I took Harry Christopher's wonderful recording. And it's a piece I, I could listen to over and over and over again. What's it called? Oh, Nata Looks. So we'll finish on that one and speak to you next week. This episode, you've heard the following music: "Spem in Allium" by Thomas Tallis, performed by the Tallis Scholars and conducted by Peter Phillips, published by Gimmel, and the record label was Gimmel. "Oh, Clap Your Hands" by Orlando Gibbons, performed by the Westminster Abbey Choir and conducted by James O'Donnell, and the record company was Hyperion Records Limited. "If Ye Love Me" by Thomas Tallis, performed by the King's Singers and the record company was BMG Entertainment. Dido and Aeneas, When I'm Laid in Earth, by Henry Purcell, arranged by Margaret Laurie and Thurston Dart, performed by Dame Janet Baker with the English Chamber Orchestra, published by Novello & Co. Limited, and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited. Dido and Aeneas, When I'm Laid in Earth, by Henry Purcell, performed by Stephen Barlow. Mozart's Duetino Solaria, from The Marriage of Figaro, performed by Stephen Barlow. Early One Morning, by William Chappell, performed by Joanna Lumley. Folk Song Arrangements, Volume 1, British Isles, The Sally Gardens. The Poem by W.B. Yeats, with music by Benjamin Britten, performed by the baritone Mark Stone, and accompanied by Stephen Barlow. Published by Boozy and Hawks Music Publishing Limited, and the record company was Stone Records. Soldier, Soldier, Won't You Marry Me? performed by John Langstaff and Nancy Woodbridge, and the record company was Revels Records. Bella Belfast, I'll Tell My Ma, performed by Joanna Lumley. English folk song suite, Intermezzo, My Bonnie Boy, by Rafe Vaughan Williams, arranged by Gordon Jacob, performed by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, and conducted by Sir Neville Mariner. Published by Bosey and Hawks Music Publishing Limited, and the record company was Decca, a division of Universal Music Operations Limited. Onata Lux by Thomas Tallis, arranged by Anthony John Greening, performed by the Choir of Clare College, Cambridge, and conducted by Timothy Brown, published by Oxford University Press, published by Oxford University Press, and the record company was Guild, courtesy of BFM Digital. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Puccini's Turandot. Act 3, Scene 2, Diecimila anni al nostro imperatore, performed by Malaga Philharmonic Orchestra, Giovanna Casola and Alexander Rabari, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 61, Third Movement, performed by Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra, Takako Nishizaki and Kenneth Jean.
Licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.